Welcome to Comsday Live. I'm Graham Lynch, the founder and CEO of Comsday. We'll be covering a lot of ground today in this podcast. We'll be looking at spectrum reform with the Federal Minister, Paul Fletcher. We'll be looking at how COVID has affected the telco sector with Comms Alliance CEO, John Stanton. And also we'll have a look at the news of the week with a focus on Optus, Unity, Superloop and a new company called Fiber Connects run by some old hands who you may have heard of. Of course, the big issue of our times is NBN, and particularly the impending withdrawal of the free 40% CBC capacity boost, which has allowed RSPs to absorb all of the increased COVID-induced demand as people stay at home more. NBN plans to withdraw this free offer on September 19 and ask RSPs to start paying for what it estimates is a gift worth tens of millions of dollars. But RSPs say they cannot absorb the cost shock of paying for the extra CBC and will either need to raise prices or go under. So how much margin does an RSP actually make on selling MBN services? Anthony Dion, who's the head of retail at Focus, had a stab at breaking this down at a parliamentary hearing last Friday. Right now, the lowest wholesale price for a plan with a small amount of included usage at a wholesale level is $35. A $60 plan, you would need to deduct GST, that would make $54 in the hands of the retailer, which leaves $19. In that $19, you need to cover all the costs of backhaul, all the costs of network management, all the costs of overage, all the costs of customer care, all the costs of billing, all the costs of collections, defaults, disputes and complaints and technical support and the modem. I think it's self-evident. One thing is for sure, we haven't heard the end of this issue. My understanding is that RSPs actually intend to step up their campaign on this over the next few weeks. The spectre of COVID-19 seems to be hanging over everything right now, and that applies as much to telecoms as anything. Communications Alliance is at the heart of the industry response to the pandemic, and I am joined by its chief executive, John Stanton. Welcome, John. Thank you, Graham. Now, I understand that Communications Alliance has developed a code for how telcos deal with distressed customers. Can you tell us more about that? Well, what we did was uh, put together a, a series of operating principles uh, back early in the pandemic uh, with a strong focus on uh, re- retaining connectivity, uh, particularly for vulnerable customers, because uh, in times of crisis, uh, you know, customers rely on their communication service, not just increasingly for their employment and education, but indeed for many customers for their safety and security. Uh, so uh, these principles were, were put in place and there was a range of measures uh, uh, ensuring, for example, that, uh, that nobody who sought financial assistance uh, and, uh, and, and continued with that agreement um, could be disconnected. Uh, additional uh, data was uh, provided free of charge to, to many customers. Uh, there was a, uh, a general cessation of, uh, of late payment fees uh, and, and those sorts of things. And a range of new plans were, were introduced by many providers uh, particularly low-cost plans for those uh, people who found themselves with with reduced income but still needed to to maintain connectivity. So the industry responded, I think, um, 
really well to uh, to the fact that uh, you know Australians more than ever needed to be connected and able to stay in touch. And conversely, whilst people may be less able to pay for these services, they had more demand for them than ever. Uh, we've heard about MBN's 40% capacity boost for RSPs. But how, how has COVID impacted bandwidth demand overall? And what has that meant for telcos? Well, it's been very significant. Uh, we, we saw in, uh, in Europe, uh, you know, in, in countries like uh, Italy and Spain that were, were some number of weeks ahead of Australia, that uh, the demand for uh, data on fixed services uh, went up by between 30 and 50 percent, and indeed uh, the same thing happened uh, in Australia as the, as the pandemic took hold. Uh, that's on top of the fact that in any given year, typically um, fixed data demand goes up by about 30 to 40 percent. So uh, you're talking then, you know, something like 70 percent uh, during the course of, of this year. One of the fortunate things was, of course, that the the, the usage patterns changed as well as more people worked from home, uh, and so a, uh, a, a 30 or 40 percent uh, increase in, uh, in overall demand didn't necessarily uh, in, translate to, uh, to the same increase in, uh, in peak demand because the traffic was being spread more uh, evenly across the day. Uh, in the end, the, the networks um, held up very well, uh, and. You know, as you said, NBNCO uh, came to the party and provided additional CVC. There was an interesting study, actually, uh, just a few weeks ago by cable.co.uk, and they looked at uh, more than 360 million broadband speed tests uh, across 114 countries. And uh, the, the typical performance during the pandemic uh, early months uh, was an average drop in speed of 6.4%, roughly, across those 114 countries. Uh, the, uh, the surprising thing was that in Australia, we were only one of a handful of countries where we actually improved uh, our average internet speed. Uh, it went up by 5.4%. So that's a pretty good testimony, I think, to the robustness of the Australian networks and the way that they did uh, cope with that demand, both in, in, in the fixed world and uh, in mobile networks as well. Okay. And now, of course, COVID's also impacted the logistical side of delivering telecommunication services, and, and specifically in the Australian context, uh, retail stores uh, have been quite impacted by some of the lockdowns and, and the restrictions. Um, can, can you tell me about how, how uh, strong that impact's been and if it's been mitigated somewhat recently as the rules have relaxed? Yes, when the business restrictions were first announced in, in Victoria as part of uh, Stage 4 uh, uh, lockdowns, we uh, we had a situation where for a little while uh, it, it was uh, pro- um, prohibited for telcos to open their retail outlets. And uh, we had to, to mount a pretty quick rearguard action uh, in that respect because uh, the telco retail outlets are, are those places where particularly vulnerable customers like the elderly, like those who are less tech savvy, like those who've got a connectivity problem, go to get their problems resolved. Uh, and it took a little bit of time to, uh, to convince the Victorian government that, uh, you know, this was a, you know, an essential critical service, uh, that needed to be delivered, including by the piece that, of the, uh, supply chain that's represented by retail stores. And, uh, in, in those Victorian lockdown areas now, uh, a reduced number of stores typically uh, are open, but they are open. Uh, they're operating on a, a click-and-collect near contactless uh, basis, 
but we were very grateful for the opportunity to be able to continue that uh, that essential service. Okay. Now, of course, telcos have also been impacted by the impact of COVID overseas and, and particularly call centres. Uh, I, I understand that that's um, been the case in both the Philippines and India. Is that right? That's correct, yes. Uh, and uh, that had a, a very sharp and immediate uh, effect on some operational capabilities because uh, <clears throat> some of those call centres were not just providing customer service, they were also providing tech support. So uh, that was that was a, uh, yeah, a very serious situation that required telcos to, to pivot you know, really quickly and put in place a range of other strategies to, to try and maintain uh, a, uh, a good level of service to customers. Okay. Um, finally, we're now six months into the pandemic. Um, what needs to be done from here, from, from a telco point of view? What, what are the remaining challenges and, I guess, maybe future challenges that need to be met? Well, I, I think that the pandemic, not surprisingly, has caused uh, you know, a fair deal of refre- reflection about uh, supply chain risks uh, and, and the way that operational capabilities are, are located. You know, we've seen a, a lot of recruitment uh, of onshore uh, call centre uh, and custom service staff. Uh, there's been um, carriers that have, have uh, hired from other industries, uh, the airline industry, for example, where there, where there was a, uh, you know, staff that became available. Uh, we've seen retail staff retrained uh, in customer service. We've seen uh, a great deal of onshore recruitment uh, in, in places like uh, Tasmania, but also in, in New South Wales and Victoria. So I think there is a general rethinking going on, and there's been some announcements by carriers uh, about the extent to which they want to uh, you know, have a little less reliance uh, on offshore capabilities and, and, uh, and, and greater core strength in terms of, of onshore uh, service delivery. Uh, we're also uh, we, we're also seeing networks reconfigured uh, to to meet uh, different uh, demand profiles, and uh, uh, yeah, I think there's there's work going on in the, the architecture space of networks uh, to ensure that there's you know, a lot of flexibility there should circumstances change again. Uh, we've seen uh, the acceleration uh, of technologies and tools uh, through the, the course of, of necessity. And there is a, you know, there's a range of new offerings coming onto the market in a more accelerated way. Uh, things like uh, technical uh, support uh, from uh, tech staff working from their homes, uh, you know, in, in direct contact with remote customers. There's also a, a, a renewed focus, and I think work remains to be done here, on ensuring that small to medium enterprises have got all of the digital tools that they need uh, to be able to operate in, in a changed business environment. And uh, that will take a, a little while to, to work through. But I think that's something that both you know, industry and government should, should work on together. Uh, you know, small to medium enterprises are a massive part of the economy. They've been hit very hard by these circumstances. And ha- have, giving them the right digital tool set can make the difference between them being able to survive and not. week that was in Communications Day, and we're with the Chief Editor of Communications Day, Simon Ducks. Welcome, Simon. Hello there, Graham. Well, um, quite a lot of results around uh, over the past week, but one of the more interesting ones was Unity, the Greenfield operator. 
How were their results? How did they go? Well, it was a really interesting uh, set of results, actually. Uh, we know them as a serial acquirer of companies. Uh, they've uh, bought five in the first half of the year and then uh, spent the second half of the year mainly digesting those. Uh, so the interesting thing that came out of that for me in terms of their overall results was they managed to get a 25% increase in uh, organic growth. Now, when you're looking at a company that's uh, busy acquiring so many companies like that, uh, sometimes that stuff can get really mixed up. So that was a, a pretty positive uh, influence. And of course, they've got the Opticom acquisition uh, coming in the wings as well. Okay, now they're best known as a specialist greenfields operator, but they flagged some plans to go into brownfields and also into wireless networks. What, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so that was quite interesting because uh, obviously that is a bit of a change of uh, direction for those guys. Particularly the uh, big announcement, I guess, was the fact that they're looking to resell a uh, 5G fixed broadband network next year. They didn't mention who that would be, but uh, odds-on favourites probably would be Optus. Uh, Telstra are not reselling their 5G network. And uh, we haven't actually uh, seen the, uh, what uh, TPG are going to have on the ground uh, by that stage. But uh, they didn't only just say that. They also talked about using wireless technologies, new wireless technologies, to extend their fibre footprint. Um, one of the key things they said to me, which I thought was quite interesting, was that they have over 7,000 exclusive ports to buildings uh, that they've already connected. So realistically, it's going to give them a lot of opportunity to actually start expanding into brownfield and commercial uh, buildings because uh, I was under the existing impression that uh, there's so much fibre out there, do we need some more fibre? But uh, obviously they're going to be targeting this using some of their existing estates and uh, building out from those. Okay, now, this is something very interesting. They're not very happy about the uh, $7 regional broadband levy that's applied to all competitors to NBN, but they don't want it abolished. They want it expanded to cover all wireless and, and presumably reduced in cost as part of that as well. Well, what's the thinking behind that? I think if you look at it, it's, it's one of those things where you would argue they would say that, wouldn't they? Um, everybody is trying to spread the uh, cost of RBS, and uh, they would love to see a lot of the operators that are actually actively marketing uh, 5G as a fixed broadband replacement and a way to get around the MBN. So you can understand their rationale behind that. Given the fact that legislation's just uh, passed and is betting in, uh, I'm not sure how much uh, traction they're going to get on that, but it's certainly an aspiration, and we're going to hear them talking about that a lot more. And uh, I understand they also had some interesting things to say about MBN pricing as well. Yeah, that was an interesting one, because uh, when you're talking about uh, uh, wholesale pricing, uh, interestingly, they said they're going to be able to grow that for themselves, in two ways. One was uh, the fact that they're going to move migrate people to higher speeds, uh, which is an obvious one. And the second one was suggesting that uh, they have a little bit of headroom against uh, MBN wholesale pricing. They think they're more competitive because you don't have to connect back to all the uh, MBN poise. Uh, their uh, network or the wholesale network is uh, state-based on the backhaul. And uh, so because of that, they say they're more competitive and that gives them a little bit of headroom and it's going to become even more interesting uh, in come September time when uh, MBN rolls back the 40% CVC uplift 
because uh, when that happens, uh, Mick Simmons, the CEO, even gave uh, a little bit of a hint that they have a little bit of headway to increase wholesale uh, pricing on the back of uh, this move by MBM, which suggests that uh, there's a bit of uh, arbitrage there where MBM becomes the standard wholesale price and uh, these guys are actually literally just going to sit very close to those or play in the margins just near that. Okay. Thanks for that, Simon. You had another very interesting story this week about uh, Optus uh, and what was claimed, and this is, this is a mouthful here, the world's most 2300 and 3500 megahertz 5G non-standalone carrier aggregation call. So what does that mean in plain English, Simon? Uh, exactly. And the funny thing about this is it's part of the uh, Telstra Optus space race uh, that we're getting on 5G. Uh, lots of announcements uh, coming out from both of them. Uh, the interesting uh, one uh, for this one was the fact that uh, carry aggregation uh, is a thing that's been with uh, the mobile operators for quite a while. It's used in 4G. Essentially, you're tying a bunch of spectrum channels together at different frequencies and it allows you to use your low band, mid band and high band together and maximize coverage and speed and uh, range. And uh, I'll go into a little bit of uh, how they managed to do that. But uh, the interesting thing on the back of that was that uh, Optus have given, uh, although this was a trial, it was a call in Sydney, uh, they've uh, given the intention that they're definitely going to be looking at this to help densify their networks as uh, some of this technology comes on stream because it'll allow them, uh, as they have 700 megahertz, and uh, with the impending MM wave, uh, it's going to give them a lot of flexibility to uh, combine some of this traffic, put non-contiguous and contiguous spectrum together and actually boost speeds for customers and also some of the ranges for, um, uh, you know, when you're on a high band, the low band uh, gives you uplink, will give you a, um, a way to get onto the network and uh, increase the coverage at that size as well. Okay, okay. Now, uh, is this just going to stay in trial stage for a while or is this something which can go commercial um, pretty quickly? So it's, uh, they're going to be bound by uh, two things. One is the uh, handsets uh, availability and what's going to happen there. And, of course, all eyes are on Apple and what they're going to do. The uh, trial itself was done with Samsung's Galaxy S20. Uh, the, uh, also, uh, the Galaxy Note, I understand, uh, is going to be uh, part of this. But uh, Ericsson, uh, although Nokia said it'll be available later in the year, Ericsson has literally put a date on it and said Q4. So that's when we expect that... Uh, this will become generally available. Optus look like they're going to roll it out uh, fairly quickly. And uh, I think uh, the key thing Optus uh, mentioned to us was the fact that they do want to try this with uh, some of their other frequencies. And uh, so I think they're going to do a lot more uh, testing as we go toward the end of the year. And they'll test out uh, aggregation between the high mid and mid-low bands. Okay, that's great. Okay, thanks for joining us today, Simon. Thank you, Graham. We're looking at the week that was in Communications Day with Rowan Pearce, who's the Executive Editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Rowan. Hey, Graham. Now, you had a really interesting article about a new company called Fiber Connects. Um, 
can you tell us a little bit about who's behind it? Sure. So Fiberconnects, which was formed last year, is a dark fiber company. It's formed by Mark Rafferty, who people probably know as the um, former wholesale chief of TPG. Also, but the, the interesting thing, um, our article this week concentrated on his new management team at Fiberconnects. And the interesting thing is they kind of trace back to his AAPT days before he joined, well, before AAPT was taken over by TPG. So he's got a kind of a crew of veterans around him there now. Um, a lot of experience both at AAPT, also some Metronode Equinix experience too. Um, but the other interesting thing, I think, is it's not the only AAPT connection because one of the major investors in um, Five Connects is actually 360 Capital through their digital infrastructure fund, which is also um, led by David Yule, who is obviously the former um, CEO of AAPT and um, also of the NextGen Networks Group. Um, so obviously, like a big, big concentration of AAPT in one company. <laughs> They've got the band back together, have they? <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> I did. I did suggest that to Mark. Um, Unfortunately, it's one of those things. He didn't repeat it back to me as a quote, so I couldn't chuck it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Now, so what, what's their actual plan? What are they doing? So, uh, essentially, it's, um, it's a wholesale-only dark fiber play. Um, one of the big differentiators is that they're using all their own duct. So, right now, they have construction crews. I think Mark said around 12 or 13 in the field at the moment. Um, rolling out, I think, um, I think he said it was about five kilometers a week. Um, of uh, duct uh, using alternative routes to existing duct. So I think one of the kind of selling points is going to be like a new kind of resilience path. Okay. Um, hmm. And I guess, yeah, I, I, I think one of the key um, the key things that he stressed in his conversation is that he thinks the real advantage is that it's going to be wholesale only, so there's going to be no kind of um, uh, competition from a retail arm. There are going to be kind of no conflicts there. And where's the fiber actually going? What's, what specific kind of locations are they going for? So uh, Mark, Mark says they basically they're building to every data center is the way he puts it. So every data center. Wow. Okay, that's ambitious. <laughs> so all, all the major operators, um, and he obviously sees that there's a real hunger for um, you know new fiber, new dark fiber into those data centers, um, and so it's quite a like it's quite an ambitious build, really. Um, I should say also that he's kind of hinted at like this is this is phase one that they're in the uh, process of doing at the moment. That's that's a data center build out, starting with uh, Sydney and Melbourne. Although he also did say two overseas locations, which I thought was kind of interesting, but he didn't elaborate on. Okay, well, I guess that's a mystery which will be uh, revealed in the future. Um, you also had a, uh, a good piece this week on the financial results for Superloop. Now, of course. Um, Superloop are going through a transition with their CEO. Uh, Drew Kilton is departing after two years. He's been replaced by Paul Tyler, who is the former MBM business chief. Um, these were Drew's last results as CEO. Uh, how did his numbers look? I, I think he was um, he was quite happy with them. Um, obviously, he, he's also he's going to stick around at, um, at Superloop on the board, I believe. Um, but it really, it was quite a healthy result. Like, uh, revenue was down 10% to around $108 million. But if you exclude some kind of, like, one-off subsea cable um, uh, work, it was only down 2%. And I think um, they will be particularly pleased because their fiber network revenue, which is kind of like, you know, obviously their, their core business was up 37% year on year. 
And I guess two of the factors that were kind of weighing down on revenue. One was the guest Wi-Fi business, where obviously we're in the middle of a uh, global pandemic, and that's kind of like, I think he may have used the, the phrase decimate um, for that, which is, is understandable. But obviously, they're, they're expecting that to come back next year. I think um, uh, the, other, the other revenue factor would be the fact that they've still got their kind of um, non-core cloud-managed services business that they're in the process of um, exiting. So I think those are two factors. Um, on revenue, I think um, so. EBITDA on a statutory basis up from 8.5 million to 13.5 million, so that's healthy. And I, I think um, one other interesting uh, figure to note was the um, the giant difference in capex, which was down 70% year on year, and that kind of just reflects the fact that they've done their big infrastructure build for now. And uh, the way Drew put it was now they kind of they've got that real focus on sales acceleration for the next year. Yeah. Okay, but they've been doing quite well with NBN. So they were off they were off to a slow start in the retailer market, but they, there seems to be some acceleration now. Yeah, I, I thought so they ended up like it's still um you know, in, in RSP terms, like they're not um, they're not giant. They still ended the year um, with about thirty thousand um, NBN end users, um, but that also reflects like a, a 64% growth year on year, which is obviously a phenomenal growth rate. I think um, one other interesting thing um, that Drew noted during his results presentation was that they believe that they actually have the highest proportion of 100 megabit plans um, out of other RSPs. That's what they've heard from NBN anyway. And actually, just the final thing there is that. Um, the margin is also improving there because they've been shifting um, more of the kind of customer base they purchased onto their own backhaul, which obviously saves them money. Okay, interesting. Um, how was the market viewing the hire of Paul Tyler? I, I, I mean, you know, you don't you don't want to draw necessarily a kind of a, 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 a exact correlation with all these things sometimes, but you can see once. The, the day after he was hired, there was movement in the kind of share price and it kind of increased for a few days. It's come down a little bit since then, but there was like, there seemed to be some movement and understandably in the sense of like, obviously NB and Co, he built a very impressive kind of like uh, business arm for them. And obviously people will be looking at him doing that again at Superloop, I guess. Okay, on that note, thank you for joining us, Rowan. Cheers. I want to talk about what is probably the most significant reform in spectrum management to take place in Australia for a quarter of a century, with the introduction of a new radio communications amendment act into the parliament. Um, I have the Federal Communications Minister, Paul Fletcher, with us. Welcome, Minister. Good to be with you, Graham. Okay, what was specifically out of date about the 1992 Radio Communications Act, uh, which needed to be updated? Well, I think the first thing is 1992 is 28 years ago, which is an eternity when it comes to the tech and communications sector. The Radio Communications Act, I think, has served us well. And, of course, in that 28 years, we've seen unbelievable change. You know, in 1992, GSM hadn't even been introduced. Uh, there were probably only a few hundred thousand people on the Telstra Analog Amps network, GSM was just coming along. Since then, of course, we've had 3G, 4G, now 5G. Um, we've got the NBN fixed wireless network. 
We've got a whole bunch of other broadband players using uh, unlicensed spectrum for wireless broadband and, and plenty using licensed as well. So there's just been a, an extraordinary amount of technological and market change. Specifically, I think there were a number of things we were interested in making some change to, the maximum length of spectrum licenses. You know, when telcos are investing billions of dollars in physical assets to deliver a service which rides over the spectrum, naturally enough, they want real certainty on the tenure. You know, uh, when I was at Optus, now more than 10 years ago, but I remember it was always an anxious time every five years when the 900 megahertz spectrum came up because there was this fear that um, you might not get the spectrum renewed. So just giving that greater certainty and that longer tenure, very, very important for, for confidence. I think the other thing is the, um, the framework, it's quite um, rigid in terms of the three types of licenses and the new act will give the, the, uh, the ACMA more capacity to, I think, um, craft license characteristics that will be uh, more suitable to, for example, a specific location or a specific application. Okay. Now, you chose the path of um, amendment rather than a complete new act, which is what was originally envisaged when this process began six years ago. Why did you choose um, this alternative path? Well, again, as I think you've, you've answered the, 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 the question in the wording of your question when you said the process began six years ago. Indeed, it did. And that's a long time. Um, I had a look at this once I came into the portfolio and I formed the view that perhaps there was a little bit too much of an appetite in Canberra for a, you know, a, a, a leisurely, almost academic exercise of um, recrafting the regulatory framework from the ground up. Um, I didn't think there was enough of a sense of urgency, but also I felt that that created you know, unnecessary anxiety and uncertainty in the industry because people want to know, well, how big of a change is this going to make to existing licences and what does this do to our property rights in relation to licences that we've paid a lot of money to acquire? So um, essentially I wanted to move quickly and my feeling was we could focus on the um, specific uh, reforms that were necessary once I made that direction clear uh, to my department. They've worked very effectively, I must say, and very quickly in my view to get to the point we're at now. Okay. Now, you mentioned the mobile operators there, but what about for other spectrum users? And, you know, of course, there's many different types of users out there, amateur radio, defence, and so on and so on. What are the benefits to them from these reforms? It is a very good point that spectrum is used by a very wide range of users, and it's something people don't really think about very much the regulatory framework that underpins how Spectrum is used, but it is so critical in so many applications. Defence, as you say, is a big user of Spectrum. Uh, emergency services, very big user of Spectrum. Uh, amateur users and so on. So um, amongst the things that the bill will do is um, the ACMA will be uh, required to publish a, a statement effectively on its work program so that that will give people just more clarity and more understanding about what 
kinds of things the ACMA is thinking about doing. But also, um, just if I take one specific area, the problem where people buy equipment that is not, in fact, authorised to be used, and, and people can you know, easily make that mistake uh, without any intention, um, and the, the, the bill um, you know, recognises the fact that um, the, I guess the retail environment is much more fluid than it was 28 years ago. It's very easy to buy things online and sadly some of those things which are sold to Australians don't comply with our, our laws and our regulatory framework for radio communication. So one small example is that um, it'll now be possible for the ACMA to essentially accept um, people simply forfeiting or handing in unauthorised equipment um, and that will be a, an adequate regulatory uh, remedy. So the ACMA will have the power to accept that. They won't have to go to um, much more onerous uh, and prescriptive fines and so on. It'll just be a sensible, flexible regulatory measure. So that's, that's one small area where um, I think uh, it's, it's just going to allow the ACMA to do a better job and uh, also help people who might have inadvertently uh, been using unauthorised equipment to, um, to quickly deal with it. Okay. Um, now, the, the uh, amendments have been broadly supported by industry, but um, there is uh, so, some mention from some courses that they would like to see more clarification about the new powers for the Australian Communications and Media Authority. What, what do you think about that? Well, clearly we're now in a process of parliamentary debate and um, that continues to present stakeholders with the opportunity to put views to me and my colleagues, um, uh, you know, on all sides of the parliament if they do have concerns. But I'd make the point, we had pretty extensive uh, consultations and exposure draft of the legislation was out for several weeks. People had the opportunity to put in their comments. Um, what we're seeking to do here in terms of the powers of, of the ACMA is to put them in a position where they can uh, be flexible, where they can move with the speed that the sector expects and um, really, I guess, bringing up to date some of the uh, powers that they have at the moment. And again, just on that point about enforcement, for example, at the moment they've got um, some pretty heavy penalties they can impose, but there's there's then not much below that and there's a lot of situations where heavy criminal penalties are not a very good tool. They'll have a lot more flexibility here just to manage the spectrum efficiently. You know, issues like interference can be very problematic and they can be really dangerous, for example, if there's interference with radio communications that is used for emergency services or a whole series of other um, essential functions in modern society. So giving the ACMA more flexible powers to move quickly to deal with these kinds of issues, I think is a good thing. Okay. Finally, um, what do you think will be the wider benefit to the economy from these reforms? When you think about the extraordinary scale of mobile communications, uh, also of wireless broadband, when you think of what's coming with 5G, we're really only in the very early stages of implementation of 5G. The radio frequency spectrum, you can't see it or smell it or touch it, but this is the platform on which much of 
Australia's digital economy rides, and that's only going to increase. When you think about sectors that are critical to Australia, like mining and resources, um, agriculture, transport, these are all sectors where improved wireless communications are going to be really key in um, these industries being productive, being globally competitive. So this is a framework which allows the spectrum to be managed more flexibly, more responsibly, uh, in a way that gives people stronger incentives for innovation and trying new things. And so, you know, we've seen an unbelievable explosion in activity in since 1992 um, in radio communications and in voice and broadband communications over over the uh, the wireless spectrum. Um, I think there's every prospect that that rate of innovation is only going to continue and to have a flexible, modern set of um, uh, a modern regulatory framework that supports innovation is, I think, what we need to continue to capture the benefits of innovation. Thanks for joining us, Minister. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Graham. Well, that's Comms Day Live for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Just a shout out that you can keep in touch with daily news and analysis by taking a subscription to the Comms Day Daily PDF edition. You can also join us in person at Comms Day Summit coming to the Fullerton Hotel in Sydney on October 26 and 27. You can find out more about both at www.commsday.com. Until next episode, adios. Adios.